This is Tom Rath, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic. This is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 0702 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. It's a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 0702 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Tom Rath. Tom is a friend of mine and a brilliant thinker and researcher. You probably know his name as the co-author of StrengthsFinder 2.0, But for the last few years, he's been on a crusade to help us live more fully charged. In fact, that's the name of his recent book, Are You Fully Charged? It's a deep dive into the science behind how we eat, move, sleep, work, and how that affects our energy levels and how we can bring our whole selves to work. Tom's even produced a documentary called Fully Charged that features interviews from some of the researchers behind it and outstanding interviews with people who are living the way Tom's research suggests that we live. It's a great episode for the new year because I think most of us are ready to make some changes in our lives, bring a better version of ourselves to work, and bring more energy into our life and work. And so here is our interview with Tom Rath on how to get more fully charged. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm Tom Rath and I I spend most of my time uh, conducting and reviewing research and trying to bring some of these great discoveries coming out of uh, academic labs and organizations all around the world to life for people. So it's a little bit more practical in their lives. See, so Tom, you are, I mean, you, you've been on the podcast before. You are like an intellectual soulmate to myself, right? Same, same deal, looking at all of the different insights. I like to call it facilitating the transfer of good ideas, right? Because the really the best ideas are sort of out there in the academic literature, but they need a translator, right? And, and you've been a template to me for that for the longest time. So without sounding like a fanboy, um, it's awesome to have you back um, and talking about it. What I really love is we're here to talk about kind of a... Um, a totally new way to do it. Um, maybe not new as a genre, but new for the type of work you do that you're, I love that we're constantly experimenting with different formats. This time we're here to talk about a movie. Um, before we do that though, let's talk about the last time you were on, we were, you were launching, uh, the new book, Are You Fully Charged? Um, how's that been? What's the reaction been? I think a lot of people remember listening to us chat about, Are You Fully Charged? And, and that was the template for the movie. So how's, how's the book been? What's the reaction been? You know, it's just had a great reaction from uh, people in the business world and to to a, maybe even to a greater degree, leaders especially who are thinking about health and well-being is kind of a new frontier for the type of relationship that organizations and people need to have in the future. So that's that's a part of why we decided to invest even more time and energy in uh, not only the core business book, but uh, we put together a, a version to help parents and kids have conversations around it and illustrate a kid's book. And then what we've been working on for the last year or two now is this uh, documentary that goes into more depth with some of the top uh, social scientists whose work uh, we talked about in the book as well. That's, As you mentioned, I think this is a part of 
what my team's been experimenting with to say, what are all the different ways that we need to reach people in terms of uh, those entering the workforce or maybe people who are um, later on in life who aren't as likely to pick up a nonfiction business book today. So is that is that was the initial kind of idea for um, the the documentary? Can we call it the documentary version of the book? Because really, there's stuff in the in the movie that's not necessarily the book. The movie to me is kind of like a total make your whole life fully charged type of thing because there's all sorts of insights from a variety of stuff. Um, but I mean, the general idea is that that sort of let's let's write a book for people who wouldn't read a book, and that turned out to be a movie. Yeah, you know, there were a few things that came together at the same time. One was. Uh, as we were working on the book, Are You Fully Charged, a uh, uh, former uh, CNN executive producer uh, who's now with Al Jazeera, he came to us and said, you know, I, I'm really excited about this content in both the Move Sleep book and Are You Fully Charged. And he had this idea about uh, bringing that to life in the form of a feature-length documentary. And that was at the same time that my team was kind of wrestling with the question of, you know, if we really want to help people build uh, more effective lives through the work that they're doing that makes a difference for other people, uh, we know that we need to reach beyond that core business book audience because there are a lot of people who do really important work in organizations and communities and churches and schools today that aren't that likely to pick up a business book. And so we looked outside examples, everything from the remarkable success you've seen with uh, Dave Ramsey helping people to learn through uh, faith-based groups in particular about their finances to uh, movies like Forks Over Knives and Food Inc. that are leading people to think differently about the way they eat. Um, and we saw the way those uh, documentaries and videos can have a pretty profound influence on starting a much bigger conversation and decided that it's probably time to give that a shot in terms of a lot of the best social research going on in business and economics and psychology as well. Yeah, and the the book is sort of or the the book is packed with insights and so that to me the documentary version of that is there are a ton of different experts in this film. I have I have some of my favorites from from it, but I kind of want to ask, I mean, you went out and did kind of I'm I'm actually fascinated with the number of people that you kind of tracked down, but I'm kind of curious to to you like what was your favorite interview to kind of conduct and, and put into this, whether it was part of um, the original sort of Are You Fully Charged framework or even just somebody that you thought like, oh, let's throw it in and then we're surprised to how cool it was. I mean, there's everything from like uh, working on treadmill desks to planting gardens to behavioral spending and all sorts of really cool stuff. But I'm, I'm really curious. Um, I obviously have my favorites written down I want to talk about, but I'm really curious to know your favorites. You know, it's interesting. I, I started with a wish list of um, a lot of the thinkers and researchers that I've admired most uh, around the world over the last 10, 20 years and uh, did everything we could to get them to be a part of this. Um, but then it turns out we also, the, of course, the producer who is far savvier than I ever will be on these topics said, what's really going to matter are these individual stories of people who have read these books and talked about these things and seen real transformations. And so I think a couple of my favorite stories turn out to be just uh, everyday people that we found and interviewed, one of them being uh, a person you alluded to, a guy named Ron Finley, who he calls himself a guerrilla gardener. He lives in South Central Los Angeles, and he's really been into the way gardening and beautiful plants and trees can create better connections and well-being 
uh, for people just in the moment throughout their day-to-day life. And so uh, he talks about in the documentary how uh, he's just decided to plant all these trees and flowers all around his yard and in medians and uh, around the curbs in his neighborhood for the sake of creating natural beauty that changes the trajectory of people's day when they're walking by or going by on a train when they commute to work. And um, Ron Finley actually faced the battles where the city said, hey, you can't do that. It's not your job. And uh, they at some point actually issued an arrest warrant and told him, you know, you've got to stop. And so he went, of course, went and did it again um, until he finally got past the city regulations and trouble. And when you hear the mission that he has around that, um, it brings some of these things to life even more than all of the academic uh, researchers and uh, studies that I was originally most excited about with the film. So it's been fun for me to see how uh, these producers and filmmakers that we've worked with can, I think, help people to relate to this in a very different way. And then, of course, I'm sure there are a lot of people in there from Brian Wansink on the food and behavior expert side to Nicholas Christakis on social networks that um, I've had huge respect for just in terms of their work and how that comes to life over time. Yeah, no, totally. And okay, now, so now you've already hit um, two of my favorites. I had kind of three or, or four favorites. Um, let, let's actually let's start with the social networks one because I find this this fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about um, Nicholas Christakis, his research. I think it's. Um, I mean, we sort of know that we're influenced by the people around us, but it's really was illuminating to watch sort of how much so, and then what that means for a variety of. Fields. What were the insights that either surprised you or, or the insights you knew coming in and wanted to make sure he, he talked about? Tell us sort of the behind the interview-ness um, to it, because I think it was, a, it was a fascinating interview. I'd be fascinated to know what happened before or after, you know, you said action and cut. Yeah, you know, I've, I've studied and I've read all of uh, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler's uh, papers. A lot of it started out of their analysis from that Framingham Heart Study, where they had a lot of great data on the individual community in Massachusetts there. Um, and some of, some of it's been controversial, but the, the big takeaway for me is that we're, we are pretty dramatically influenced by the social networks that we reside in the thick of, even when we're not just looking at direct connections. So some of the things that have been most fascinating to me are the way that second and third degree connections, so a friend of a friend and even a friend of a friend of a friend, has some residual effect on our likelihood to smoke, on our likelihood to be obese, on our well-being, um, on all, almost all these variables that they've studied, you can trace that uh, effect out to a few degrees. And the other thing from some of the Christakis work is the way that proximity matters quite a bit. So if you have a even a sibling that is within a mile of where you live, that has a pretty profound influence. You get out to 10 miles or 100 miles, and sure, you still care about that person, but it might not affect your day-to-day well-being as much. And um, I think what, what was new to me from the documentary in our interviews with Nicholas Christakis was I never understood his personal connection to all of that research. And his personal connection started when he was uh, a resident in medical school uh, working on the south side of Chicago, and he was doing house calls and going into families' uh, living rooms and working with uh, the bereaved and the dying in particular. And he talks about the way there was really one day that stood out for him where he was visiting a woman who was um, terminally ill and a near death, and he got a phone call from someone on his way home that day, and it was a friend of a man who was the husband of the dying woman's daughter. 
and the friend was talking about the way he'd been so profoundly influenced because the woman who was sick, her daughter came home and was always in, in such a bad state that that influenced the husband, and the husband's um, being upset influenced his friend, and that's what got him thinking about this great interconnectedness throughout those networks, and it's it's pretty remarkable to see where someone's research starts and then carries out over 10, 20 years like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one of the other sort of kind of health-related, but I think it also has leadership implications, uh, insights from the documentary that I thought was fascinating was the, um, and I'm blanking on the name, the Army Surgeon General that talked about how important, even in the Army, they're recognizing sleep is, right? Because I think in a lot of, um, in a lot of macho cultures like you would expect the military to be, but also even in a lot of organizations where you sort of go up or out through the organization. We kind of like I'm thinking of law firms and consulting firms and even a lot of other high stress businesses. We tend to think that like, oh, sleep is the first thing we sacrifice. And uh, we the idea that leaders and individuals, leaders, parents, et cetera, really need to be focused on this idea and make it a priority Um it's one of those. It's one of those insights where you hear it, and, and it's not like, oh, that's that's so surprising and counterintuitive. What's counterintuitive about it is like just how much data there is, and yet we still sacrifice sleep for other things. Yeah, you know that's that was one of the more influential uh, learnings for me from all of the background research we did around this documentary. Is when. The book Eat, Move, Sleep first launched a couple of years ago. Uh, we had some notes from the Army Surgeon General, Patricia Hirojo, who she's a, a three-star general and in charge of uh, the health care and um, medical state of more than five million troops around the globe. And she was saying how she'd been trying to build a program around uh, getting soldiers to eat and move and sleep better. And her biggest issue inside the uh, armed forces and inside the Pentagon was getting people to take sleep seriously, to your point, where um, it, it, that has the same culture that you see in, like you talked about, banks or healthcare. I saw it growing up in the Midwest in Nebraska where and the last thing I'd ever do is admit I needed a whole seven or eight hours of sleep because that's just seen as a weakness. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot more valued in that culture to say, I only had four hours sleep last night and I still did X, Y, and Z. Um, but what she's realized through all of the research that she'd looked at, that, and I, I've looked at, I'm sure you've studied it as well, is that uh, um, if you need to be your best and you need to be sharp at 4 o'clock in the afternoon as a leader or as a soldier in any other occupation, you need to get a full seven or eight hours sleep just to be effective. And in the documentary, uh, General Hirojo talks about the way she now sees sleep as ammunition for soldiers' brains when they're in the battlefield. And boy, was that powerful when I heard her say that about um, we've got to view each hour of sleep as the ammunitions our brains need in the battlefield, whether that's in work or in a real battlefield, as she studied within the military. And so I, th I think as leaders, we've got to start talking about that and prioritizing it. I was watching an interview at, the, at a conference with Reed Hoffman, the CEO and founder of Netflix, earlier today, and he talked about the way um, he takes six weeks of vacation so he can recharge, and, and he talks about that very openly with his people so they do the same, and it's not one of those cultures where you're trying to burn yourself into the ground, and that was pretty powerful testimony from a, a CEO of an admired company. 
Well, and I think that's an interesting one too because it's it's an alternative arrangement, right? So in an ideal world, eight to nine hours of sleep, but the idea of, okay, push it and have... Somebody else I heard refer to it as like a harvest season and then a winter, right? So you have a harvest where you're working... And, and hey, you're from, I mean, you're from Nebraska. I live in Oklahoma now. Like this is an analogy that I get. You have a harvest season where you're really pushing it, but making sure that afterwards you're having that other season to sort of rest and recharge... Um, hugely important. And I, I love that analogy of, of uh, ammunition for the brain. I think, you know, so often it's seen as as a cost, right, instead of uh, a benefit, instead of an investment, instead of ammunition, something that will only kind of help you. And maybe the reason this resonates with me so much is that I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and so sleep is probably something <laughs> that I'm kind of lacking, right? Um, right. But I, I, I ever since uh, ever since Eat, Move, Sleep, and then again in this documentary, like I, I have begun to not be ashamed about the fact that bedtime for my older boy is eight o'clock, and my wife and I are probably in bed by eight thirty, right? Because we know right. they're going to wake up early, and we know that it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to stay up and what watch TV or whatever. We're going to have a way better day if we just call it two. Uh, and sleep while they sleep, right? Which is, I think they said that when when our son was first, when my first son was born, they said sleep when your baby sleeps. And even though he's a toddler now, we still just do that. That's our whole uh, approach to getting it. You know, I've found the exact same thing in my own life with a couple uh, little kids here. And what you essentially have to do is you've got to work back from what time you have to be up and how do you make sure you at least have a chance to get seven or eight hours of quality sleep in a given night. So you're not always going to get it. But how do you kind of work back from there? And, you know, I've rearranged my schedule when I travel so that I ensure I have that window if I need to be sharp the next day. And as you start to view it as um, an investment in having a good day tomorrow, it, it helps you to make a little bit different decisions throughout the day in terms of the way you prioritize that. And it's it's a part of the broader conversation we've all got to have so that our work can be sustainable over time and not something that's a burden or that burns us out after a few years. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so shifting from the impact of kind of sleep on work and the leadership um, dynamic to that, there was another interview that kind of fascinated me. Um, and, and again, I'm blanking on the name, but it was around this idea that there's a difference between sort of a job and a calling. And it, it it's important to know which one you know you have, whether you're just working in a job or whether you have a calling. But I think there's a leadership implication there too to sort of know who is looking at their current job or the current organization they work with at that level of what we would call calling um, and who is just sort of there for the job. Yeah, and that's that's probably the one piece of research that I'm most excited about that we talk about in the documentary in the last few years, which is um, Amy Vresnevsky, who's at Yale now, um, and she, she wrote up the paper on this with uh, Barry Schwartz from Swarthmore. Uh, they studied West Point cadets and followed them longitudinally over a span of 13 years. And what they found, they were, they were kind of looking at, do these cadets, when they're coming in, have more of the intrinsic motivators for doing what they do, or do they have extrinsic motivators in terms of wanting to be seen as successful and to make more money when they are out of the military and so forth, um, or do they have both? And do they, are both of these motivators helping them? And I think I would have suspected, and I think Amy would have too, based on what I've heard from her, that if you have both motivators, that's probably a better thing, where you have both that internal drive to do things for the right reasons, and you have the external um, incentives there as well. But when they followed up with these troops after 10, 13 years, what they found is that having both, even both motivators can work against you. So if you have that real internal motivation and you have the external piece as well pulling you forward, those cadets were less likely to 
achieve some of the right outcomes and to feel like they had that sense of satisfaction later on. And so we do need to be very careful about how we let these external motivators, incentives, and money in particular drive what we do. And as leaders, the, the takeaway for me is we have to be extremely careful about calling out the right kind of altruistic social motivations for doing good for other people in addition to um, spend, I, mean, I think right now on average most leaders spend far too much time on kind of the monetary and fiscal incentives assuming that that's what's driving people and keeping them in their jobs and what the, the research that we talk about in the uh, movie from West Point would suggest is that you have to be cautious about even pairing those two together. Well, yeah, exactly. It was the pairing that really, I think, struck me. Uh, longtime listeners to the show might remember that when my first job out of college in between you know, undergraduate and graduate school, I worked as a pharmaceutical rep. My wife was a doctor. It seemed like the perfect thing to do. And that's a really weird industry because the majority of the rhetoric that you get at sales meetings and that sort of stuff is this weird combination. You'll go from somebody talking about how you know, your such and such drug changed lives. And, like, and we sold cardiovascular drugs, things that lowered blood pressure or things that protected you after a heart attack that you really could derive meaning from the products that you were a part of. And then we'd switch right to like rewarding the top compensated salesperson and talking about these grand sales conferences where people were winning trips to Hawaii. And it was just this just weird, like this weird contrast between talking about the altruistic effect and then talking about the money. And and it seemed like they both sort of canceled each other out and we all just left kind of confused. And, um, you know, I, sometimes I say it in, in some of the talks that I give that like I – I quit my job uh, like mentally at one of these sales meetings. It was a year later when I actually quit, but like I typed, I got bored and uh, was so annoyed at this idea that I typed up my resignation letter there and said like, I'm going to start applying to grad schools and if I get in, awesome, and I'll go do that route. And if I, if I don't, I'll just find a new job until I get in, right? But I can't take this anymore, so I mm-hmm. set the timeline there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great illustration of how those things in kind of a practical way just confuse and muddle not only the messaging from a leadership standpoint, but then what's going on internally inside each of our heads when we think about what's motivating us on a day-to-day basis. And I mean, while of course, I mean, there are some cases where incentives are helpful for very basic tasks, if that's the first thing in front of your mind, um, especially when you get into more um, complex jobs, we've got to be careful about that and making sure that we're sending more of a consistent and cohesive message about the importance of the work that each of us do on a daily basis. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. So the the movie is is out. It's available, uh, fully charged. You can get it on. I'm sure you can get it on iTunes and uh, ev- everywhere where we watch movies. I'm going to ask people like buy it. Um, you know, don't just rent it. Buy it. It's worth it. You're going to want to. You're going to watch it, and then you're going to want to buy it anyway. So just save yourself some time and go buy it. Um, especially. If you're looking to give someone who doesn't like reading books but you know could benefit from one of Tom's books, if you're a fan um, but and you want to know how to share it, this is like the perfect gift for people who don't normally read books because it can help change their lives, make them better leaders, uh, and, a, and make them better parents, a variety of stuff that we didn't even have time to talk to um, just from watching a, a really well-produced documentary. So I want to encourage people to, to check that out. I also want to switch a little bit, ask you our five questions for, for the leaders that we interview on the show, the first one being, and this is going to be an interesting one to hear from you because eat, move, sleep, fully charged, etc. But what's the best advice you've ever received? I think the the best advice 
that I've ever received is to focus on, focus even more time and energy on what I naturally do best, and then to surround myself with people who can be even better at a lot of things than I ever could. Hmm. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, what's an average day look like for you? An average day, a good average day for me, is when I when I uh, get up and um, walk my daughter to school. It's about a mile each way with the whole family, so that she can be a better learner and friend each day because she has a little activity in the morning. And I do as well, and then um, after that, I get some time to focus and concentrate and do some research and writing. And then I get to have um, a few conversations that are really intellectually stimulating with colleagues and um, friends and organizational groups that I'm working with uh, in the afternoon. And then um, more quality time with kids in the evening learning about what went really well and what were their challenges throughout the day. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Um, I, I, this is, this is going to sound shameless, but your uh, new book is, uh, management is, uh, one of the most recent books that I've finished. And, uh, one of the, I, I, I'm not just saying this, one of the, um, best and most challenging, uh, with new counterintuitive, uh, points, uh, books that I've read in, in a long time in this business space. So that's the one I've been really excited about this year. I'm also in the middle of, uh, General Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams right now, which I, I had a friend recommended it a couple of days ago. And that's a remarkable read for business leaders in particular in terms of uh, some of the, the history of management it gets into and the conclusions and illustrations. So those are a couple of the better books I've read lately. Oh, you, you can come back on the show anytime you want. I just keep <laughs> it. No, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Um, my favorite question, and you might be my favorite person to, to get to ask this to yet since we started doing these five new questions, what do you believe that most people don't? I believe, uh, I, I believe that people should leave work at the end of the day healthier and with better well-being when, and when, than when they showed up in the morning. And I believe it's an organization and a leader's responsibility to ensure that's happening so that they have the right kind of relationship with their people. I love that answer. And to be honest with you, I think you just summarized your sort of body of work, right? Because the traditional thinking is let people get, I mean, even the traditional thinking among well, well-intentioned organizations is let people get refreshed, recharged, healthy, et cetera, outside of work so that when they're here, we can drain them and not overdrain them, right? But the idea that when they leave work, they're actually better than they were when they got there is, uh, I think, hugely impactful in organizations. You're totally right. I, I love it. I love it. The last question. So the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? the intensity with which people are eager to follow.
Hmm. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, so Tom, Tom Rath, I think we both, we just summarized eat, move, sleep. Are you fully charged strengths based leadership and maybe even strengths finder <laughs> right there in two questions. So that was pretty awesome. All right. <laughs> right. Well, if, and if you didn't catch it, if you didn't know what we were, were talking about there, uh, there's, there is a, a whole new documentary like we were talking about earlier to, to catch it in a new medium. But Tom has an amazing backlist of books that are worth working your way through. But in my mind, Hey, grab the whole family together. Start with the documentary, start with fully charged, get it where, wherever you get your, uh, favorite movies. So um, check out that Fully Charged. Tom, in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun talking to you as usual.